My wife and I are polar opposites. My love language is acts of service. Don't just tell me you love me, show me you love me. Do the dishes, mow the lawn, put the kids to bed, put up or shut up, do something. And when you do, what I hear is, I love you. Jenny, oh, not that way at all. Jenny's love language is quality time. Just be with me, sit with me, look into my eyes, pay attention. Are you paying attention? Are you thinking about church? Look at me. In my eyes, the eyes that you said hung the moon, those eyes, look in my eyes, be with me. See, polar opposites, polar opposites, which adds excitement <laughs> into our lives on an ongoing basis, this excitement because we're opposites. Jenny promised that she would tackle the kitchen. She did. This is an ongoing thing in our marriage because... I'm of the opinion that people come in and they use dishes and they just drop them everywhere. I'm like, there's even a dishwasher. Just open the door and put it in the dishwasher. Don't just put it on a counter. You're telling some offenses now, aren't you? But Jenny said, today I got the kitchen, Max. No worries. I got it. I got it. I'm going to do the kitchen. I'll have it all ready when you come home. And you know what I heard? Max, you are the greatest man in the world. I love you more than anything, more than life itself. I love you. I skipped off to my day because I was on cloud nine just feeling loved. And things happened and, you know, this stuff and a meteor crashed in the neighbor's yard and God knows what else. And she just couldn't, didn't get to the kitchen. And my day went a little different as I planned. And I came home about an hour earlier then I said I was going to come home, and there it was, the mess. So you know what I did? I cleaned it. And you know what Jenny heard when I cleaned it, when she came and she saw that it was all clean, you know what she was feeling? You didn't trust me. You're telling me that I'm a bad wife. And so at that moment, we had to have what is called a discussion. And Jenny sat me down, and we sat in the red chairs in the kitchen, and Jenny explained to me how my actions communicated to her that I did not trust her or take her at her word that she would actually clean up the kitchen, and stuff had happened, and her day had not gone as it had planned. And when I do these things, I am not making her feel very valued or good or anything positive. It hurt her. And I said, I'm sorry, Jenny, I'm sorry, would you forgive me? And then she explained how when I come home and I do the, that, that, it hurts her. And it hurts her feeling. It makes her feel like I can't trust her. And I just looked at her that time with the second explanation and took a breath. And then she launched into a third round of explanations. Three. At the end of the third round, I could feel the Spock-like you know, emotional shutdown taking place. I'm pulling the plug on emotions now, Captain. <laughs> she could see it in my eyes. It was not a good moment. But at the end of the third time, I'm thinking, Jen, let go. <laughs> Just can't, why can't you forgive me? You know, it's not the big a deal. Okay? And so there it is. You, do, you find yourself in the same things. Why couldn't Jenny let go? Well, 
when the roles are reversed and Jenny is the offender and she has done the dastardly deed or has said the awful string of words that should not be said by anyone, let let alone Lord Sauron, okay? No one should utter those words. When I've been on the receiving end and she does the I'm sorry thing, there's a part of me that's thinking, well, you know, if I just forgive you, you're just going to do that again, aren't you? Or how do I know that this is really sincere? I don't see tears. Are those, and if those are tears, are those really tears or are you just sorry because you're caught? I mean, how sorry are you? Are you sorry for the offense or are you sorry because I'm, you know, you know, shooting you the death ray look now, right? Okay. And that's, it plays out in our relationships all the time. When you and I do things that we should not do and say things that should not be said, we are all about forgiveness. Man, how come they just can't let go? What is wrong with them? And yet when we're on the receiving end of harmful words, when we're on the receiving end of dastardly deeds, we're like Lord Aragon at the end of the Lord of the Rings. Let the dark Lord come forth that justice may be done upon him. Try that as a parent sometime. Just stand at the foot of the stairs, call the name of your child, or in the hallway. You know, let John Mark come forth that justice may be, you know, it's probably not good. Sorry, John Mark. Just picking on a kid randomly has no, no relation to reality, okay? This tendency, this tendency that you and I have to be duplicitous, when it comes to being on the receiving end of hurt and then on the giving end of hurt, this duplicity gets us into trouble in our relationships. And it's why I want to talk to you about what I'm talking to you about today, which is creating relational safety in your relationships. Creating relational safety. I, ta- I teach this message or a version of this message once a year. It's that important because it's that hard. But the fruit is really, really great. I, I know too many kids, I have too many kids that have grown up and they've grown up in a home where the parents were duplicitous about this and they've got the girlfriend or the wife or whatever, or the husband, and bring the parents call and the person's like, it's your mother. <sighs> yes, mom. Okay, boom. It's that quality relationship, okay? I've known too many kids, and that's the kind of relationship that they have when, when the kids become grown-ups. I've known too many marriages that end up at a table, a nice wooden table, and she's got an attorney, and he's got an attorney, and they're talking about irreconcilable differences, and this was a dynamic that played out in the marriage relationship. The creating relational safety is something that you can do in any relationship. You can do it with your kids. You can do it with your spouse. You can do it with your parents. You can do it with your friends. And when you've succeeded, your kids, your spouse, your friends will feel safe to come out. And that's where the good stuff happens. Well, how do you do that? You do that by front-loading the relationships with acceptance. You front-load. Let me say that again. You front-load the relationships with acceptance. I know some of you right now are thinking, what? Whoa, now wait a minute. If I accept them, are you, wait, you're telling me I should accept them even though they don't pick up their room? Yes. Are you saying that I should accept them even though they say these nasty things to me? Yes. I am saying those things. What? Yes. And here's why. Here's why. And it's found in the uh, letter, Paul's letter 
2 Corinthians. So if you brought a Bible, open it up, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. This is a very practical letter. Paul lists details for his upcoming trip. He's also defending the fact that he's an apostle in this letter. Um, And he's talking about a collection of aid for Christians in Jerusalem uh, that had been hit by a famine. And so in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 18 to the end of the chapter, has one of the clearest statements of the gospel in the entire New Testament. Uh, I was reading through a bunch of thick theological things over the past week or two related, and they all said the same thing. This is probably the single most important sentence in the entire New Testament. This passage, word for word, has more, you know, blah, blah, you know, earth-shaking, you know, this is John Calvin saying this stuff, and I thought he was always right. He thought he was always right, okay? So, Second Corinthians, I'm just, it's just, okay, breathe. Ah, okay, all right, uh, breathe, okay. Second Corinthians chapter 5, verse 18. And all this, all this is a gift from God. What is all this? Uh, Verse 17 is what he's referring to. Anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. The old life is gone. New life has begun. The old's gone. The new's here. You're a new person, new creation. So verse 18, all of this, this newness, this new life is a gift from God who brought us back to himself through Christ. And God has given us this task of reconciling people to him. Reconciling. Reconcile. To reconcile is to make some things compatible. And if two things aren't compatible, you have to change one of them to make them compatible. Uh, And Andy Stanley puts it this way when he's talking about this passage. He says, in essence, what Paul is saying here is that God looked at you and God looked at me and then God looked at himself and he said, incompatible omniscient, holy, perfect, flawless, full of love all the time, full of grace, full of goodness, full of beauty, you. Incompatible. Let's go over this again. Holy God, omniscient, omnipresent, beautiful, all loving, all gracious, all the time, worthy of praise, you. Just, you know, kind of an infinite stuck loop. But God did something absolutely extraordinary. And this is what Paul Uh, meets out in these sentences. For God was in Christ, verse 19, reconciling the world to himself, no longer counting people's sins against them. This is huge. And next week, we're going to get into the theology of this passage. But this week, we're talking about the practicality of it, all right? Uh, uh, God has given his task of reconciling people to him. And, uh, for God was in Christ, verse 19, reconciling the world to himself, no longer counting people's sins against them. No longer counting people's sins against them. I mean, think about that in the moment, like when Jenny and I are in the red chairs. Jenny, no longer counting sins against them. Or Max, no longer counting sins. I mean, that's a huge statement right there. And so what God did is God died the death that we deserved, and made up the incompatibility so that we can be compatible. We didn't do anything for it. And so when God looks at you and me now, it's front-loaded with acceptance and compatibility. And, and, and again, next week, we're going to get into the theology of this. Um, God punished his son on our behalf. And so here's, let me, let's, let's start drawing this out. 
we talk in the church how everybody's a sinner, right? We've all sinned. Paul writes that in the, the book of Romans, for all have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. When God got your attention, chances are he didn't do it by sitting down and having a two-hour appointment with you in which he says and, and laid out in a list form, hi, Max, it's God. I just want to spend a couple hours with you right now. and I just want you to know um, you're a liar. Yeah, and um, you know how that stuff when you pray and you're really just praying because you really just want something? No, I'm not into that at all. And, and I mean, just to go down the list, if God went down a list like that with you, how inclined do you think you would be to go, oh, God, you're so worthy to be saved, you know, worshiped. I'm, I'm, you know, you might because he's all powerful, but I've noticed in human contexts and in human relationships, when we're on the receiving end of a lecture, when we're being thumped because we're in the wrong, our natural human tendency is to kind of either shut down or cross our arms or go, mm, no. Yeah, I, I was sorry before. I'm not sorry now. Not after the lecture. Thank you very much. What is that weird thing that we do? Isn't it weird the way that plays out? All right. God figured out how to get into a relationship with us without us changing anything. God accepted you and me first before we ever changed a thing. That's what the Paul talks about in that whole reckoning righteous thing, all right? This is tremendously good news, and it means that uh, God's approach to us has really been to, to, to just, it's these two incompatible things and all the, the long, long list, and it's like he doesn't see it. You know, the Bible talks about, you know, Forgiveness is forgetting in God's sight, and it's like he doesn't remember anymore. And so, again, we're going to get into theology next week, but here's where the rubber hits the road. Paul's saying this is how God dealt with us, and yet we turn around in all of our other relationships, even though God front-loaded his relationship with us with acceptance, and we make everything else conditional, don't we? whether it's our spouse, whether it's our kids, our parents, our neighbors. Oh, no, 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 no. You are not, we say to other people, you are so not acceptable to me. You can't be reconciling to me. You're, you're just strange. You've got issues. You're never going to change. No, uh-uh, no. And, and so we keep our distance. But, but Paul here says, we are Christ's ambassadors. God is making his appeal through us. We speak for Christ when we pre plead, come back to God. For God made Christ who never sinned to be the offering for our sins so that we could be made right with God through Christ. We are Christ's ambassadors. Paul says he's been given a task or a ministry of reconciliation. And it's not just the message. I think it means we also have to embody reconciliation in our own lives and in the relationships that are around us. And when we do that, when we embody that reconciling work of God, people get a glimpse of, of God, and the relationships work out better. They just do, because God knows this and knows this to be true about humanity. Reconciliation is not justifying your actions to someone. Reconciliation is not being completely understood you know, if you have the thing, well, they just need to know that. Well, hmm, that's not reconciliation. 
Reconciliation is not convincing the other person that they're wrong. No, you don't get it. Let me explain it again so that you understand how wrong you really are. (laughs) Okay? That's not reconciliation. If you want to create relational safety in your relationships, uh, then you got to make sure that the relationship is characterized first by acceptance. Because acceptance creates safety. And safety leads to vulnerability. And I want to get into that in a minute. But I know there's an objection, right? And and some of you are thinking it right now. You're going, well, wait a minute, wait a minute. If I accept my mother-in-law, if I accept the jerk, whose name I will not say, okay? If I accept him, if I accept her, it's just going to look like I'm condoning their behavior. And I would say to you, Yes, it is going to look just like that. And I'm sorry that that's the case. I really am. I'm sorry. But Jesus kind of got into the same jam himself. If you read through the Gospels, Jesus was constantly getting into trouble for front-loading acceptance in relationships with people who didn't deserve to be accepted. Zacchaeus, the tax collector, the crook, who stole a town blind, the town of Jericho. And he goes to dinner at Zacchaeus' house. And the crowd outside is, the word used is murmuring, grumbling, complaining. See, if, if you had talked to the crowd, they would have happily explained to Jesus how this should have worked. Oh, Jesus, we know Zacchaeus. Okay, see, now, if he could just repent, like publicly, and be really contrite, we would love to see tears. And then a plan that shows that he's really going to, you know, change and not be the same person. And, and then I would give it at least, what? What do you think? I, yeah, six months. Well, you know, two years. Two years. Then we know. We know he's changed. Then you can go to his house. Then it'll be safe. Then it'll be okay to accept him. Because he'll have shown that he's changed. He'll have shown. But no, 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 no. Jesus front loads the relationship, he front loads acceptance, shows up, creates safety where Zacchaeus has a realization, I'm a crook, aren't I? Yeah, you're a crook. And then real change happens, all right? Jesus didn't come to condemn the world. He came to rescue it. And that same mantle falls on you and me. Um, and so I want to talk about this path, all right? When you front load your relationships with acceptance, when you do this with your kids' parents, it creates relational safety. And in relational safety, people will stick their heads up and they'll admit things and they'll say things and they'll let you see some things in their heart, in their soul. People do that when they feel safe. But acceptance, large doses of it, is what creates that context for safety. And in safety, safety will often, not always, but often lead to vulnerability where people actually admit to wrongdoing, where people will say, well, you know what? I've got a Bob Parr. I've been an absentee dad. His speech was not news to the family. It's not like they were like, do you, you hear what dad's saying? Really? Absentee? No, no they were like, Finally, he's admitting what we all know. You haven't been around. Thanks. Good job, Dad. Okay? But it's this path. 
And it's a hard path, isn't it? Because you have the same objections I do. Well, it's going to look like I'm condoning them. Well, what if, what if? Yep, mm -hmm, uh, I, I totally get all of that. But if you want the good stuff over there, there's one road to get there, and it starts with front-loading relationships with acceptance, which cultivates safety, which leads to vulnerability. I had a, a friend at Wheaton, uh, a co-ed. Uh, she was a girl. Her dad was a service master executive. Oh, they had so much money. They had the hugest home, hugest home. Maybe even in the 1980s, it was huge, okay? And she had a late model Beamer, when she was at Wheaton, okay, she was one of those because we would always talk about the Beamer Wheaties and the non-Beamer Wheaties. I was a non-Beamer Wheatie, okay? Um, and so the non-Beamer Wheaties sometimes had envy for the Beamer Wheaties, okay? That's how it worked, okay? So, but she had a Beamer. She had, she just, you know, vacations in Europe. Europe? You're vacationing in Europe? Who does that? Was money for that? And all this stuff. But see, Dad, it came with a price. Dad, work, 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 work. Work, 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 gone, 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 gone. And that was the chief sin that her father had. And she was a little frosty in college when the subject of dad would come up. You know, the little barbs. Oh, yeah, Mr. Stalwart of the Faith. Psst. And you could be like, oh, hey, um, Christy, you might want to dial that down, huh? No, <laughs> feeling the flames from here. Um, well, every time... Uh, divorce, dad gets divorced. Oh, another reason to hate dad, yeah, because you were never around. The relationship with mom didn't work out because you, you know, put work first, da da da. So all this blame and everything else. Uh, dad remarries and uh, confesses to this woman that he marries what a horrible father he's been. How he was an absentee dad, how he put his career at service. Uh, uh, Service pro, serve, I can't remember the name. It's the service master, thank you. Service master, above everything else. Oh, you know, uh, and how he just totally was not the dad he should have been for his daughter, da, da, da. She never heard that until the funeral. Never heard that until the funeral. She was so mad. But I'm standing from the outside and I'm like, well, duh. Because every time he would call, hey, honey, how's it going? Oh, like you care any more than you did when I was eight. When somebody says something like that, the person on the other end is not immediately going to go, oh, hey, this, I, this feels like a safe place. Honey, I, I would like to acknowledge the fact that I stunk as a dad. No, it never happened. But he told the wicked stepmom. Why? Because she was a safe place. And he was vulnerable because it was safe. All right? Let me ask a question of you. When it comes to your kids, your parents, your wife, your husband, your friends, what would a relationally safe environment look like? In your relationship with your husband or your wife right now, what would it look like for it to be relationally safe? What would need to change in order to make it safe? See, your job, if you're a parent, is to create that kind of acceptance and safety so that your kids can be vulnerable at key moments along the way because then you can have real heart-to-heart -heart faith conversations and, and help steer the ship. I can't tell you how many times I've heard of uh, the, the teenager who never studies, okay? So what mom and dad do all the time, they nag. 
As soon as, as soon as teenage John or Susan come through the door, you need to study. You didn't study last night. I know, I know you were just on that phone and blah, 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 blah. Yes, mom. Tune out, tune out, tune out, tune out. Okay, da, da, da. and then later on, several times throughout the day, you need to study, blah, 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 blah. Okay, this same kid will admit to all their friends and their girlfriend, I so, like, I am such a bad student. I need to study, da, da, da. All their friends will be like, yeah, they need to study. They all talk about it. They know they need to do this. But in the context of the badgering, see, it's not safe. It doesn't come out. It's, this plays out time and time and time again. Um, and so here's my uh, bottom line for you today. When you do the hard work of front-loading acceptance in your relationships, it can create enough safety where people feel vulnerable enough, to, safe enough to come out. And I really think you want that in some of your key important relationships because vulnerable people are often willing to take responsibility for mistakes. And that's the real magic. And that's how God treated us, which is why we should so treat one another that way.